Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content director at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing on in our series in the book of Deuteronomy, and here the guys will be in Deuteronomy chapter 21, looking at verses 10 through 17. We at Theopolis exist to renew the church for the sake of the world. We see ourselves as scaffolding to help Christians rebuild God's heavenly city, which will renew the cities of men. And to faithfully carry out this task, we really need your help. Theopolis, frankly, survives on donations. We have some money that comes in from our app and other sources, but it's not enough to live on and continue our work. So we need your help to train more people in the forgotten treasures of the symbolic world of the Bible in the scriptural pattern of worship and how these things can renew the world around us. As a donor, you're going to be directly supporting our efforts to teach and develop tools and foster networks to assist church leaders throughout the world to form thoroughly biblical and liturgical churches. So to give to our work, you can find a link down there in the show notes. You can also find information there for how to become a Theopolis partner. Partners donate $50 or more a month or $500 a year and receive additional perks for giving at that tier, including a hefty weekly email from Peter Lightheart called The Theopolitan. So for more information and to give and become a partner with us, please check out that link in the show notes or head to our website, theopolisinstitute.com slash give. That's theopolisinstitute.com slash give. And thank you so much for partnering with us in our work. With that, we really hope that you enjoy this conversation, and we want to thank you so much for listening. And here are Peter Lightheart, James B. John, Alistair Roberts, and Jeff Myers discussing Deuteronomy 21. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with Jeff Myers, Alistair Roberts, and James B. John. Brian Motes is recording for us, and he'll be editing and getting it prepared and releasing it to you. Uh, We're in the middle of a series of studies on the book of Deuteronomy. We're in Deuteronomy 21. We covered the first part of Deuteronomy 21 in the last episode, uh, which is an unusual ritual uh, that is done in the case of an unsolved murder. If there's a dead body found, investigation doesn't uh, reveal who's responsible for it then the elders of the nearest city have to do a ritual that will atone for the land and remove the impurity and the stain on the land or prevent it, perhaps, as we discussed. We talked about it at the beginning. I should say I talked about it at the beginning of the last episode that uh, these laws are unusual. The ones in chapter 21 have unusual details. We talked about that with the first section, the fact that it's a heifer. It seems like a sacrifice, but its neck is broken. It's not. Its blood is not shed. Uh, It's not the priests who are doing it, but elders of a city, just a lot of things that that don't fit the normal pattern of atonement. And uh, it seems like we're dealing with something more theological and symbolic than just just a rule for Israel. Uh, And I think that that's true of the rest of the legislation in chapter 21, theological and symbolic. And more specifically, I think we can say it's Christological. Some of the things that are in chapter 21 are explicitly Christological. James pointed out in the last episode uh, that uh, verses 18 through 21, the law about a stubborn and rebellious son who is executed, that's quoted by Jesus' detractors in the Gospels. Uh, he is a glutton and a drunkard. That's the way what the way they talk about Jesus because he eats and drinks with tax gatherers and sinners. And so they're bringing these charges against Jesus, the faithful son, 
and calling him a rebellious son. And uh, so there's a, a direct link with with Jesus in that. At the end of the chapter has um, the phrase, he was hanged on a tree, is cursed by God, which Paul quotes when he's talking about the cross. Jesus bears the curse, and the evidence for that is this passage in Deuteronomy 21, that those who hang on a tree are cursed. Jesus was hung on a tree. That shows that he is cursed, but not because of his own evils or wrongs, but because he's bearing the curse for us. And the other passages have also been seen as Christological or allegories of the gospel in some way. It's been pretty common to see the red heifer as a type, not the red heifer, but the heifer in the first part of the chapter as a type of Christ. The animal is killed for cleansing of the land. John Gill has a very extensive allegorical interpretation of this that includes um, begins with the city. Cities are typically on a high place. The ritual is done in the valley, and so there's a descent from the high place to the valley that is a an allegory of the incarnation. Uh, and then there's the the death of the animal as a substitute. That's an allegory of the cross, the purging that that brings. There's a washing uh, that uh, I don't think Gil connects it with baptism, but you could point uh, could connect it with baptism. So that kind of allegorical treatment of the of the heifer rule is uh, is fairly common. Uh, throughout the centuries, and the the uh, rule that has to do with the captive bride, when you take a a woman captive and you bring her into your house and you make her your wife, uh, that rule has also been taken allegorically. And I think there's there's some reason for saying that within the context of Deuteronomy, in the way that uh, verse eleven talks about the man's desire for this beautiful woman. That's language that's used elsewhere in Deuteronomy to describe Yahweh's desire for Israel. So if we think of that rule as an allegory of Yahweh's relationship to his bride, he takes a bride, brings her into his house. She has to go through a purification, and then he raises her up to be his to be his bride. So that that too has a kind of allegorical, Christological significance. The other more subtle way that I think this is these are typological rules have to do with the way that death and resurrection are being played on throughout this section of Deuteronomy. As I've said repeatedly. In our studies, this section of Deuteronomy from chapter 19 through the first part of chapter 22 is the sixth word section of Deuteronomy. It's under the heading of thou shalt not murder, but frequently the the uh, the laws are playing not just with prohibition of murder, but with mechanisms that bring new life. So the, the cities of refuge deal with, deal with manslaying, but what the cities of refuge do is give the manslayer a new lease on life. The manslayer isn't put to death. Uh, if he's done it accidentally, and the and the city of refuge becomes a kind of city of resurrection for the manslayer. In chapter 20, the besieged cities are cities of death. They're doomed. The Lord is going to give those cities over into the hands of Israel. Everyone who stays inside is doomed. But there's a, there's a chance for the resurrection of the city of death if they would but submit to Israel and to Israel's God. The elders of the city, by performing the ritual with the heifer, are bringing new life to the land by cleansing and or or atoning for the death that's taking place in the land. Uh, the woman is mourns for a, a month, uh, goes through a kind of mourning ritual, and then she's given new life within Israel. Even the execution of the, the rebellious son has the effect of turning Israel to opening Israel's ears so they hear the son is stubborn and rebellious. He doesn't hear his father or mother. He won't hear them. And yet, when he's executed, then Israel hears and fears. So, their ears are opened by the execution of the rebellious son. 
which means that their ears are open to Yahweh's instructions, which are giving them the path of life. So even even the harsh harsh penalty that's given within this within this section is still dealing with the, it's a it's a mechanism of new life and resurrection. It's not just so. I guess the one one way to summarize what I've just been saying is that the idea that the sixth word "thou shalt not kill" implies promotion and protection of life is not an, a theological inference, but it seems to be built into the way Deuteronomy deals with this commandment. Uh, it doesn't just keep repeating "thou shalt not kill." You don't kill this way, and you don't kill this way, and you don't kill this way. It's setting up institutions and patterns, rituals that don't. They aren't just preventing killing, but they are providing pathways to to new life beyond death. Peter, I wonder if something else that can be um, uh, bundled in together with that, which I've, I was thinking of last time around, is this kind of theme of fruitlessness that seems to be going through the text, or of things not having borne fruit. I mean, in the whole um, heifer ritual in the first half of this chapter, there seems to be this connection between the the life that's been lost, that has kind of been cut short and not borne fruit, and um, the penalty that's to be paid. You know, they're, they're to go to a land that hasn't borne fruit, in, it, hasn't, like, it hasn't been ploughed or, or anything. The, the heifer hasn't been yoked. Um, it, it hasn't done any service in, in, in that sense, you know. And, and um, the, if you think about the exceptions to war in the previous chapter, people are, are to be accepted if they have um, married um, or if they've just just planted a vineyard and, and not enjoyed the fruits of either of those things. And that seems to carry over to um, these uh, captives uh, in, in the bit that we're looking at this week. In the, I mean, this lady is to mourn her lost um, father and uh, mother, but it's not spoken about her husband. And, and so presumably she she is a woman who hasn't um born fruit in in so far as she hasn't had children and and that just seems to be um something connecting together these kind of slightly disparate texts that we've looked at yeah thanks james that's that's helpful that and that yeah that's just uh, another dimension of what i was uh, highlighting the first uh, section we want to look at uh, is in deuteronomy 21 10 through 17 10 through 14 rather and it has to do with uh, an Israelite man who during war sees a beautiful woman and brings her home to be a war bride. And uh, it rules about how to do that. One of the interesting historical side sidelights on this is uh, uh, the fact that the way that this passage has been used historically, I think Origen uh, uses it this way. Uh, I, I came across this in Delubach's, probably first volume of Delubach's history of medieval exegesis. And um Everyone knows the uh, Augustinian idea that we take the plunder of Egypt and uh, we plunder Egypt and put the plunder to use to build the house of God. Uh, he uses that image in, on Christian teaching. Uh, we can plunder Greek culture and Greek thought, Greek philosophy, uh, transform it, put it through the fire and the water, and then it can be used. The gold and silver of Egypt can be used to build the tabernacle. So there's a, a, a it's a it's a paradigm for for using the cultural inheritance from outside Christianity and put it to use within Christianity. But uh, Origen and other and other writers used this passage in that same way. So the the beautiful captive bride is the is the plunder of Egypt. She is a she is a kind of plunder from a captured city 
And she goes through this ritual of cleansing. She shaves her hair. She clips off her nails. She changes her clothes. She goes through this uh, period of cleansing and renewal. And then she is brought into the house. Uh, And that's a, for some early writers, that's a way of thinking about how we use cultural inheritance from, you know, from pagan cultures uh, and how they can be put to service in the church. The thing I like, the thing I like about that is if you just take the, uh, uh, Augustinian idea. You take just take the gold and silver from Egypt, put it to use. It doesn't doesn't necessarily include this idea of purification or purgation or transformation, and can lend itself to kind of uh, a notion of just uh, taking taking things wholesale from a pagan culture and bringing them into Christianity. That's not what Augustine is doing, but that the the image doesn't include that element of purgation, but this one does. So the woman just doesn't doesn't just come into the house. She goes through a kind of death ritual. And then is renewed in within Israel and within the house of this Israelite man, and that's an image of what what can be done with resources and cultural achievements that are pagan that can be renewed and brought into service to God. Ultimately, that's accurate, I think, Peter. But this passage also ends with the possibility that the Israelite man lets her go free, and so that. Uh, yeah, she's a war bride, and she's plunder, and she's cleansed, and she's uh, removed from her old world and her parents. Uh, but yet, um, if the husband, and there, there seems to be no moral, you know, judgment against the husband who decides after all this, after this month-long period of mourning and purging, if you will, if he decides that he doesn't delight in her, doesn't want her, and he lets her go. Uh, there's no, there's no penalty for that. In fact, the um, the the woman herself appears, as we would say, to have some rights, and he can't do with her what he wants. He can't make her into a commodity and sell her for money. Make her in, you know, sell her for as a slave. But um, and even the, at the end, somehow he's humiliated her, which which can either mean that he's already had sexual relations with her, which I don't think really works here. If it did, then it would be a matter of divorce, like in Deuteronomy 24. But it it seems like the humiliation here is just him taking her, and there's the promise of marriage, but he decides that she's not up to it. She's not is pretty or as useful or whatever, and that's a humiliation to her. So there, there's this. It seems to be this emphasis on the woman and her, her, her moving as you, as we said, her moving from the this old world, this the en- enemy of Israel into Israel. But the woman herself has a great deal of of uh, of rights, if you will, as well as the man. Yeah, I'm not sure what to do with all that, but it's I'm just calling it to attention, uh, calling attention to it in the text. Yeah, one way to one way to summarize that, Jeff, is to say that um, she's brought into Israel and she has takes on the status of an Israelite woman. Um, she's no longer a slave when she after she's gone through this period of this kind of liminal period, and that can't be reversed. She can't, uh, the man can't put her back in a slave status. Uh, so that's it, helpful. Yeah, that's yeah, helpful. So, yeah, so it would it would fit with the, uh, it would fit with some of the uh, slavery laws that we looked at earlier in uh, in Deuteronomy Deuteronomy fifteen 
the way that uh, Israel treats slaves, and uh, she's yeah, she's she's treated with dignity. And just to reinforce that, Jeff, the, it was and you start out with the the man's desire is the basis for the woman coming into his house. Verse eleven, uh, in verse fourteen, if he's not pleased with her, if his if his desire cools toward her, then she goes. Uh, according to her soul is the phrase in verse 14. It's translated in my NASB as whatever, wherever she desires, which I think is correct. So wherever and whenever she desires. So the desires of the man are the initiating thing, but then it, the desires of the woman are honored if he's not pleased with her. If he releases her from, uh, and he's no longer her Lord, then she is making a decision herself and following her own desires about what where she goes next. Do you all have thoughts on the specific things that she does in this liminal period? Um, I think James mentioned the fact that she's mourning for her father and mother for a month, but she's also shaving her head. She trims her nails. She removes her clothes, the clothes of her captivity, uh, and then she begins mourning. So is that all just mourning? Are those mourning rites, uh, ceremonies, or... Uh, other things going on there. What, what do you all think about those uh, those specific actions? One thing I thought of and noticed here is that um, the man is going to take her. Uh, he sees a beautiful woman, okay, and then he brings her home. And basically, what she does is um, rid herself of everything that might make her attractive. In one sense, um, she's. Uh, uh, she's losing her nails. She's losing her hair. She's taking the clothes off that might have been also suggestive. And so that it it, it might it might be possible here that she is being, well, how should I put this? The man is going to have to accept her and, and agree to love her based on other factors than the eye-catching quality of her beauty at first. Might also think of the contrast between the vision of war rape as something that is done in the passion of um, warfare and the action that is taken here with a significant amount of time having to pass. There is cooling of those initial passions and the attempt to humiliate the enemy to gain control over them to um impregnate whatever it is this is not that this is a very different sort of situation in which that person has to be taken into the family and be treated as a wife not just a sexual victim of a of a warrior yeah and and to reinforce that uh, fact that uh He's not even allowed to go into her. That means sexually, he's not allowed to approach her sexually in verse 13 until she's gone through that mourning period. So that would, uh, it's not, it's not, uh, there's no permission of rape uh, of a captive woman. And, and also the fact that uh, she's given time to mourn for her father and mother, which means that there's a, she's given time to, to, to show her respects for the world she's leaving, uh, which presumably is a pagan world. Maybe she's a Canaanite woman, uh, but she is permitted to show a proper respect and honor to her parents. So again, a, a, uh, 
uh, respect for the dignity of the woman and the and the uh, protecting protecting her from the uh, the very common uh, result of war, which we we've talked about in previous episodes. We might perhaps also analogize the cutting off of the hair and the nails as akin to something like um, the cutting off of the leaven as they leave Egypt. There's the principle of growth, which is cut, and then there's a new period of growth that's initiated. Yes, it's almost like a um, a kind of decreation, isn't it, prior to um, entering Israel? I, I was um, thinking of the image of Nebuchadnezzar, who obviously his hair grows long and his nails um, are, are said to grow long, you know, and that's during his time of kind of being uh, scattered from the tree, you know, put out from God's uh, kingdom, and and then obviously, you know, he's uh, um, restored to his his right mind when he's um uh reconnected with, with his kingdom and, and so on and um uh that seems to be part part of the image here but i mean i i like jeff's um point about the 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 instantly attractive things are re- removed i mean it's not as if in 30 days time um the hair will have regrown or it or, or or anything and and so they seem something very significant to that. Yeah, interesting connection with uh, Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, his hair grows to be like eagle's wings, and his nails are like the nails of an animal. Uh, he's living am- among the beasts, and so there's is there a kind of humanization implication that uh, she's coming from an from another world, pagan world that's animalistic, and she has to be humanized in order to be brought into Israel. Uh, I thought I thought too about the. Uh, I mean. It seems like a, a analogous, at least in terms of the effect, to circumcision. It's a removal that uh, brings her into Israel. It also the, the fact that it's at the head, it's the head, the hand, the hands, and the body that are something is removed, and something new replaces it. Puts me somewhat in mind of the ordination of priests. Maybe there's an overtone of that that she's being brought into. Uh, a priestly people, and so going through this rite that resembles a kind of a kind of circumcision, a kind of cutting off of the old, uh, and also a a new glory that she's assuming within the new people. Yeah, that's that's good. You you use the word that I was going to come back with glory. It's a deglorification. Uh, remembering First Corinthians eleven that the hair is the glory of a woman, and also that clothing are are clothes of glory, not just clothes to protect us, but also they uh, they they provide us glory. She's she's removing the old glory, the glory from her parents' house and her old culture and the hair. And as Elser said earlier, uh, there's a re-glorification. There's a, re, uh, there's a renewal that's going on here as an Israelite. I do think, just a comment, I think in verse 10, when it says, when you go out to war against your enemies, that that's connecting back up to the kind of warfare that's going on in Deuteronomy 20. I don't think it would this would be a Canaanite woman, but a woman from one of the enemies of Israel outside the land, uh, which which they, you know, the kind of defensive warfare that they're going to have to do eventually. Right, right. I'm not sure exactly what follows from, from all this, but these... Um, going to war against your enemies passages they they 
seem to have similarities to what Israel do do when they actually take the land. Um, but at the same time, they have disconnects. So, I mean, we thought about how those who were fearful and, and faint-hearted were to be let go in, in the same way that the 10 um, fearful spies kind of um, melted the hearts of, of the people. Um, we thought about the fact that they weren't allowed to take plunder from um, conquered cities in Israel, and yet they did when they first took the land. And And here we might think of the example of Rahab, who is brought into Israel after Jericho's conquest, um, and yet there's a a disconnect insofar as I mean it's not quite the same situation, but also she is saved along with her whole household, and so there's no kind of mourning um, of of her father and mother in in that respect. And um, it it just strikes me as interesting that there are sort of parallels in the narratival context of of this, and and yet kind of disconnects at the same time. Another way to uh, think about the purification or transformation that she goes through, uh, it does. It feels also feels like a re- it's a removal. It's a kind of circumcision. Uh, it also feels uh, like it's a form of sacrifice. Again, in a fairly ab- maybe a fairly abstract sense, but there is uh, she doesn't get dismembered in the sense of vital organs being taken away or limbs being chopped off. But there's a kind of dismemberment. There's certain things that are removed from her. And then she enters into Israel as the wife, as the woman, and that's uh, been playing on uh, in the study of the creation of Eve with the uh, the pun that I think is there between the word for woman, uh, isha, and the word for uh, altar portions uh, that's used in uh, Leviticus, isha. So uh, Eve appears and she's described as a woman after. Uh, Adam goes into deep sleep. He's he he is dismembered. He has a side removed from him that's turned into Eve, and then she is presented to him as the as the result of that sacrifice. Uh, you have a kind of similar move going here that, and and insofar as sacrifice is a is a pathway or a rite of uh, death and transfiguration, then that's that's what's happening to her. She's she's being killed in regard to her old world. The morning is an, an indication of that, and she's rising again in a new world. That's just we, we've been saying that, but to just to add another dimension to it to think about it in terms of sacrifice. You know, if we use a kind of anthropological terms, and this is clearly a a rite of passage uh, where you have rites of passage. Generally, uh, Victor Turner in several books uh, talks about the the threefold, the three stages of a rite of passage. There are rites of separation that you're separated from an earlier status. Uh, there's a liminal period, a, a threshold period when you're neither in the old or yet fully in the new, uh, and then there are uh, rites of um, reincorporation. So she's going through that. The rites of separation involve the removal of her hair and her nails and her clothes. She goes through the liminal period of the month of mourning, uh, and then uh, when she is, when the man comes to her and becomes her husband, takes her as a wife. Then uh, that's the that's incorporation into a new status and a new world. So I think uh, in terms of anthropological categories, this this fits that that uh, sequence really really neatly. Can I add another strange narratival connection that I'm not sure what follows from? I want permission before continuing. Yes, we never add strange narratival connections here. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, think and and this goes into sort of verbal 
parallels as, as well. But th- think about Samson um, for a while. I mean, he goes into foreign territory, but there, rather than conquering, um, he has his hair shaved off. She shaves it off, in fact. Delilah um, shaves it off. And kind of he, he's sort of taken into Philistine um, territory, into their house, you know, the house of their God. And it's done in order to humiliate um, him. So I'm thinking of the sort of verbal parallel, particularly in verse um, uh, 14, when it's, it's talking about humiliating um, the, the woman and not treating her as a slave. And it, it, it somehow feels interesting that there are multiple connections there. But as I say, I, I don't know quite what to make of them. Yeah, I guess I, I, I do think they're connections. I guess I would uh, think of it in terms of kind of an inversion or a uh, – there's a there's a twist on the right because they're not bringing him in in order to incorporate him and give him a status in Philistia. They're bringing him in in order to enslave him and mock him. So you have a a negative twist. It's the negative um, inversion of uh, of the right here, which would which is incorporating a woman to, with a full Israelite status. If it were present in Judges, it wouldn't be entirely surprising since we have earlier on in the book, a sort of inversion of the rape in wartime scenario where the man goes into the woman and he is the one penetrated. Yeah. So that would, that would strengthen a, an association. If you could, if you could trace out uh, repeated allusions to this kind of situation that runs through, that run through the, uh, run through the book of judges. Uh, I, don't yeah, think I think there's a parallel between the earlier scene with jail and Sisera yeah. and, um, Delilah and Samson with a woman working on the head of the man and the man being brought down low as a result of her action. Actually, yeah, I, th- I think now that I think about it, I've got a post on um, uh, inversions of feasts in judges history. Um, and and yeah. so maybe it kind of fit in quite well with that. Yeah. You, you've actually figured this out in the past and you forgot. <laughs> I want to go back to the kind of the practical import of this again, which we've already brought up that, uh, the this is under the heading of thou shalt not kill. It fits under the heading of thou shalt not kill because it's dealing with conduct in war. But uh, the conduct in war is here is not so much about not killing as it is about promoting and protecting life and giving a conquered woman an opportunity to get a, a new life. And so it's it's a it's a rule about the treatment and the, the the dignified treatment even of captive peoples. Obviously, Israel doesn't always capture people. Sometimes the Lord commands them to destroy everyone in a city. That's the Lord's command. But in this case, and you have this kind of normal warfare situation, uh, the woman is treated with dignity. She's not raped, as Alistair pointed out. She's given time to mourn for her parents. The man doesn't approach her sexually until she's finished that mourning process. He can't get rid of her. Uh, by selling her, she can leave, but then she's on her own. So there's all kinds of protections here about the way that Israel conducts warfare. They have, even when they're conducting warfare, they have to conduct warfare in a way that enhances life, rather than in a way that uh, that is destructive. They're not to be children of Satan, the destroyer, uh, but they're supposed to be children of Yahweh, who is the one who gives life. I guess we can move on to the next section, verses 15 through 17. Uh, we talked about narratival links. And this one is uh, this this one has obvious narratival links to some of the patriarchal stories, 
the scenario is of a man with two wives, but the two wives have different uh, different role in his affections. It's not like uh, Abraham's situation uh, where Abraham has uh, takes Hagar as uh, she has a has a child with Hagar, doesn't really treat her as a wife, but also Sarah he has he has two sons by different women, but they're not really two wives. It's more like Jacob's situation. And specifically like Jacob's situation, because in the scenario in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 21, the wives have different, uh, he has different attitudes towards them. One wife is beloved and the other other wife is hated. Most Bibles don't use the word hate, but that's the that's the word that's used in the Hebrew. It's the word that's used elsewhere. You know, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. The Lord is uh, blesses those who love him for a thousand generations. Those who hate him, he curses for three or four generations. That that's the that's the same combination of words that we have here. It's not the it's not the treatment of the women though that's in view. It's the treatment of the sons of the women, because in the scenario that's given, each of the wives have get, has given the uh, given the man a son, but the son the firstborn son is the woman is, is of the hated woman, and his desire, if he follows his desires, he would confer the firstborn uh, status on the son of the beloved wife. He's not allowed to do that. Uh, he can't firstborn. The word firstborn is used as a verb here. He can't firstborn uh, the son of his preferred wife if, in fact, the son of his hated wife is the firstborn, the beginning of his strength. Uh, so that that's the rule that's given. There's a little bit of hint about what in, what in, what's involved in being firstborn. Uh, obvious reference back to uh, Jacob's scenario uh, and uh, the two unloved wives, but I, I've not been I've not been able to sort out exactly how it works with that Jacob narrative. It does seem that uh, Jacob, I mean, I guess he follows this rule that there are sons that are. Uh, disqualify themselves from being firstborn. Reuben does, Simeon and Levi do, uh, and then Judah becomes the most prominent among his brothers and has a kind of firstborn status, even though he's the fourth son of the hated wife. He's the fourth son of Leah, who is described as one who is hated. Other than that fairly obvious surface connection, I haven't been able to uh, sort through how this how this passage plays with the narrative. So I'm relying on y'all to to do that. The expression used in verse 17, um, the first fruits of his strength, is the same expression that Jacob uses in his blessing of Reuben, or his statement concerning Reuben in chapter 49, verse 3 of um, Genesis. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might and the first fruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Now, Reuben, of course, is disqualified because presumably of his taking of Bilhah um, earlier on in chapter 35. But this does seem to be very closely commenting upon that situation in Genesis. And it suggests more generally that we should be reading the law in conversation with and as commentary upon the narrative that the law um, gives keys to the story and the story read alongside the law is illuminating in ways that it isn't in abstraction from it. Um, but yet, as you say, how exactly it functions with the story is a bit more complicated because Reuben, even though 
he should not um, have been disqualified um, merely because he was the son of the unloved wife. He is um, disqualified for legitimate reasons on account of his actions with Bilha. And I wonder how we're supposed, are we supposed to see the actions of Jacob as precipitating the crisis, the fact that he favoured the children of Rachel and that favouring actually led, provoked many of the problems within his family that led to the sale of Joseph, that led to all the conflict and the injustice that had to be addressed. And so even though um, Reuben was rightfully disqualified, many of the things that precipitated the crises within the family would have been avoid, avoided had Jacob obeyed this commandment. It's not entirely clear to me. Yeah, I think you're. I think you're right about the your comment about uh, Reuben rightly being disqualified, disinherited. I mean, maybe maybe we can take this uh, law about the man with two wives and the two sons in conjunction with what follows, where you have a stubborn, rebellious son who doesn't hear his father and mother, uh, and they he doesn't respond when they correct him. He's uh, turned over to the city elders and he's executed. So this it's not a blank slate, a, a blank check for a son to be rebellious and still kind of be guaranteed he's going to receive uh, his inheritance or his right uh, right of the firstborn. We're not told that the rebellious son is a firstborn, but even if he were firstborn, the the parents would be within their rights to turn him over to the to the elders of the city. And even uh, short of that, you could say, you know. Uh, they could disinherit a son who whose behavior hasn't gotten to the point where they need to turn him over to the elder, elders of the city. That seems to be within their rights. So, the, yeah, the, I think the point of verses 15 through 17 uh, is not about the behavior of the sons. That's not in view. It's about the father's preference for one or the other wife. Uh, and he can't, that preference for a wife can't, doesn't affect the way the firstborn rules operate. There's also the law, of course, in Leviticus 18 about taking a woman as a rival wife to her sister, which also has bearing upon the the Jacob scenario with um, Rachel and Leah. Yes, I mean the the notion of the the rival wife there also might remind us of um, one Samuel with um, Hannah and, and Penina, and, and I, I assume there that Hannah is the first wife who hasn't. Um, uh had children and that um the man elkanah has now um taken a, a, a second wife and that kind of similar grief um follows just just as it does with uh with rachel and leah i suggested the outset of the episode that um, some of these laws lend themselves to kind of allegorical treatment and and are referenced as such christological at least treatment uh, referenced as such in the new testament uh, and uh, kind of puzzling over this rule about firstborn, is there a way to think about this that as a kind of allegory of Yahweh's relationship to Israel? Is that a way of getting to the kind of the underlying principle of this rule? And it might help us to see how it's related to the the narrative of Jacob. But I guess the one of the thoughts that occurs to me is the the way that Paul allegorizes on the Abraham narrative with Abraham and his two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. And uh, 
part of that allegory is the designation of the women, the mothers, as two covenants. Uh, the first covenant is uh, that that runs through Hagar. She's associated with Sinai. Her son is Ishmael, and he's the one who's cast out. That's applied in the first century situation to those Jews who haven't accepted Christ as uh, Jesus as their Messiah. And then there's the second covenant, the second wife, the miracle child who is born of the second woman, the second covenant in the first century situation that those are the ones who have received the spirit, who are born of the spirit, they're children of the spirit like Isaac was, rather than children of the flesh. So the way uh, way Paul allegorizes that narrative uh, suggests a kind of double wife situation for double wife, double covenant situation in Yahweh's dealing with Israel. So uh, can we can we use that template at all and say that a man, the man with two wives here, those wives represent two covenants? That's when I get tangled up. If I if I try to tease that out, it doesn't seem to go anywhere. Uh, does that spark any ideas from y'all? No, I mean, sadly, I, I was getting tangled in, in in the same way. I mean, I I do wonder if there's something going on here in in some sense in which God is kind of able to do and to kind of make decisions that man can't on his own behalf i mean i mean we're going to get into the next chapter into um mixing of various things you know wool and linen and so forth and it feels like god mixes those things together in his clothing if you like in the clothing of the tabernacle and and the way in which it involves a mixture of wool and and linen and and so forth but man can't um decide to do that it enters into this holy realm and i wonder if there's something with the whole firstborn idea here that the kind of decision decisions that the average husband in israel can't make um the the lord as as a um a divine husband of israel uh can choose a first uh, or a second born over a firstborn in in some way. I think we'll have to maybe come back to this at another time and see if we have further insight when we go further in Deuteronomy. One thing I did want to point out before we move on to the next section, which I think is easier to deal with, is the verse seventeen and the way that the firstborn, the actual right of the firstborn. What does the firstborn get? Uh, how is the firstborn treated differently from others? And uh, the the phrase is something like a double mouth. A double mouthful, translated as double portion. So the firstborn is given an inheritance that's twice that of other of other children. And I think so that you have, uh, say, hypothetically, someone in someone that has uh, ten children. You divide the you divide the inheritance eleven portions. If you're following this rule, you give two portions of that that uh, inheritance to the firstborn, and the rest get one portion. Gary North expands on this, and I think he's drawing on uh, Rushdoony's discussion of it. Rushdoony describes it as a kind of modified primogeniture. So the the firstborn doesn't get everything and leave the the rest of the children to go, you know, go into other sorts of service. You know, the firstborn gets the title, the firstborn gets the castle, the firstborn gets all the property. And then, you know, the second son goes into the church, the third son goes, becomes a, a vassal of some king and so on. Uh, using the medieval scenario, uh, it's not that, but there is a, a, a um, there is an acknowledgement of the primacy of the firstborn, and North suggests that this is because of greater responsibility on the part of the firstborn. 
that's not um, explicit anywhere, but it makes sense that the firstborn, if he's receiving a double portion, is going to is going to be responsible for using that double portion to honor his parents. We know from both the Old Testament and the New Testament that one of the primary ways that uh, children honor parents is by caring for them in their old age. And the firstborn son, as the beginning of the strength of his father, is the one who has that responsibility. And so he gets an extra portion, not so he can waste it, but he gets an extra portion so he can have the resources to care for his parents in their old age. Might also give him a uh, an, an advance on, you know, get a double portion of the inheritance. You can get a, a head start in life that establishes the family and establishes the family inheritance, establishes the family legacy uh, in a way that uh, on a firmer basis than if you had the same uh, size inheritance given to everyone in the family. So th- I think there are a couple, couple different motivations that might be behind that, but that seems to be the way the system is working here. The, the double portion idea, I don't know if it's the same phrase, but the double portion concept comes up in the Elijah-Elisha uh, narrative when when Elijah, when Elijah is leaving, he promises a double portion of his spirit to Elisha. I think that's reflecting back on this this idea of double portion. It's not like it's not that Elisha gets twice twice as much of the spirit as Elijah had. Rather, he gets the firstborn portion of the spirit. Uh, um, so he becomes pre- preeminent among the sons of the prophets, who are who are his fellows. And um, Elijah is the father. He leaves behind a first uh, the the double inheritance, the firstborn, on the chief of uh, of the prophets. Although, um, in the case of Elijah and Elisha, isn't it? true that Elisha's miracles almost double those of Elijah, even though clearly it's the firstborn portion, not necessarily a literal double portion. Yes. I mean, you've also, I suppose, got a a more literal double portion in Joseph's um, case, insofar as um, Ephraim and Manasseh are both kind of treated as equals with their brothers. I mean, that's said kind of explicitly, isn't it, by Jacob when he he, um, blesses Joseph, that they will gain an, an, an inheritance alongside um, uh, alongside Joseph's brothers. And entering into the land, Ephraim and Manasseh do then um, kind of acquire a, a huge chunk of of Israel. And, and so it seems like there is a, um, uh, a double portion there and that Joseph kind of seems to occupy centre stage in Israel's early years insofar as Joshua is an um, Ephraimite, for instance. So, like, sort of an, an initial um, leader in the land is an Ephraimite. I think the phrase "kind of house of Joseph" um, uh, crop crops up um, kind of quite early on, probably in, in Judges. Uh, I think it is. It, it feels like Joseph's portion is in the ascendancy, and Judah's then kind of comes up on, only afterwards via via David. Some have also seen within the language of Genesis 37 a suggestion that Joseph had two coats, one of them a coat presumably that all of the brothers would have enjoyed and another a second one that marked him out as the favoured son. Um, And that, I think, also um, raises the question of whether um, there was in that action that favouritism, which we clearly see in chapter 37, whether we should see that as a favoritism that suggests that already at that point, Jacob was planning to treat Joseph as the favored 
firstborn son, even though technically he was not, even though the other sons hadn't yet disqualified themselves, depending upon the chronology of our reading. I, if I'm recalling correctly, Jordan would say that the um, rebellion of Reuben occurred afterwards. Um, in that situation, you have a provocation by the father, by an unjust favoritism that then produces some of the, or provokes some of the sins by which the brothers disqualify themselves. Yeah, I can I can see that. I guess the Simeon, even if Reuben is later, Simeon and Levi, or at least it's recorded earlier in Genesis. I don't know if that's um, if there's a way to tell if that's in chronologically in in order, but it's recorded earlier. And I guess yeah, I can I can see the point. And and Jacob does is giving favor to the son of the loved wife, so that creates that creates tensions and um, uh, you know dynamics within the family that are uh, that are dangerous and you know, Reuben's Reuben's actions and 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 Simeon Levi too uh their actions Reuben's actions perhaps are a bid to assume a kind of preeminence but it's a it's an odd way to do it uh taking a concubine of your father's that's a uh, you could think of other other ways you might and Simeon Levi just don't that's not related to the struggle for preeminence at all so I I think in general Jacob has uh, maybe contributed to the to the dynamics. The other the other dimension of it too would be is he doing this because he knows that the older brothers are scoundrels as they as they in fact proved to be uh, when they in their treatment of Joseph and he's he's favoring the son who is going to be faithful. He recognizes a character character there that uh, is not evident in the rest of his sons. So I, I guess that I'm hesitant to say that he's created he creates a situation where some of these dynamics happen but I I don't want to I don't want to excuse the bad behavior of the son I think you give give Jacob some credit for having insight into the character of his sons thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis podcast for more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.